not terribly long after the invention of writing. Someone in the ancient region of Sumer sat down to record a popular story that hadn't yet been written down. Around the year 2300 BCE, some 4,300 years ago, this guy carved into clay tablets a remarkable tale of gods and men. The story had already been kicking around the region for centuries, in what is today Iraq, passed orally from person to person, generation after generation. Now, our guy was determined to write it all down for posterity. Archaeologists have found just enough pieces of his original clay tablets to put together the outline of the story. And we also have a nearly identical version that was rewritten about 700 years later in nearby Assyria. That later version we have more completely, although it had changed a few names and details from the original. It tells the tale of a hero named Atrahasis. In this story, the Mesopotamian god Enlil becomes angry at how numerous and how loud humans have become, and endeavors to destroy them all with a great flood. But another god, Enki, takes pity and warns Atrahasis to build a boat and to board it with all the animals of the earth and his own family. For seven days and seven nights, the flood comes over the world. When it stops, the gods come to regret their decision and make changes to allow humans and gods to live together peacefully. Still another version of this original Sumerian flood story was written in ancient Babylon only a few hundred years after the first, recorded in a work called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It had many of the same details, plus some additional ones. After the flood, the boat landed on a mountain. A dove was sent off to look for dry land, then a raven. Burnt sacrifices were made, and the god blessed the hero. Now this story might sound familiar to you. Every ancient culture that had contact with Mesopotamia has a version of this original Sumerian flood story, with the details changed to reflect that particular culture's ideologies and national narrative. So too with the Israelites, who recorded their version of the flood story in their book of Genesis with the hero Noah. From the dove to the raven to the mountain on which Noah's ark settled, the details are remarkably similar except for the name changes. All the more impressive when you consider that the story of Noah was written perhaps a thousand years or more after the Sumerian epic. Here's the point. When the Israelites arrived on the scene sometime before 1200 BCE, they weren't existing in a vacuum. Like all people, they absorbed and adapted the cultures from whom they had contact. Like an a la carte buffet, they picked up the things they wanted to create their own distinct plate. And we can discern those influences preserved in their creation myths and historical narratives, like the flood story. Of course, they added in details to make it their own, and these Israelites, who eventually became the Jews, would also separately develop narratives and histories unique just to them. But before we get into who these Israelites were, we're going to look into the world in which they came. It was not an empty space devoid of people, but a crowded, interconnected Near East with competing empires. Sumer, Babylonia, Assyria, these were all civilizations and empires in the East, known collectively as Mesopotamia. And to the West, we have the mighty Egyptians, the great pharaohs and their pyramids. Squished in the middle was the sliver of land we know as Israel, but which back then was called Canaan. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. Allah <laughs> 
I would say to young people, what we can do, everyone, our share to redeem the world. All right, so continuing our early foray into ancient years, the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. What are we talking about? Well, this season we're exploring the question of how the Jews became Jews. The short answer is that first they were Israelites. But before we get into who the Israelites were, we're taking these first few episodes to survey the ancient world that existed before they came on the scene, which we know was before 1200 BCE. How do we know that? Because we found that stele, that chunk of granite into which the pharaoh Merneptah recorded that he had destroyed the Israelites in the year 1208. That means, of course, that they must have been in Canaan before then. But so were lots of other people, and as we'll see, the Israelites preserved many elements of the cultures that came before them. We know that whoever wrote the story of Noah and the flood in the book of Genesis had by his bedside a copy of the Sumerian flood story. Now, we can't know which version he had. Was it the original Sumerian one, the Babylonian tale of Gilgamesh, or the Assyrian version of Atrahasis? By the time Noah was written, maybe around 900 BCE or so, all three of these versions were swimming around together in the land of Canaan. The Noah story pulls language from all three, but we can't really untangle which was which. Okay, now remember that report you did on ancient Mesopotamia back in the sixth grade. You probably drew a map that put Mesopotamia on an arc, running from Iraq up and over to Syria and southern Turkey, which you labeled the Fertile Crescent. And that's because of the two major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that form a rough arc of arable land for agriculture and settlement and cities. This is the area where the great empires of the east, Sumer, Assyria, and Babylon, rose and fell over thousands of years. This is a fascinating and deep history. The invention of writing, the development of agriculture and city-states and kingship and science. I was super excited to talk about it, and then realized it was just way too much. This is Jew I don't know about Jewish history, not Sumerian history. So alas for you, and you'll be disappointed to hear this, no lengthy discourse on the dynasty of Uruk, or the Elamite invasion, or the rise of Sargon the Great and the Akkadian Empire. You're really missing out, but don't worry. Assyria and Babylon play a major role in Jewish history, and they will both be with us throughout the season. Indeed, Here's a hint for you. We would not be Jews were it not for the Babylonians. And to find out why, you'll just have to listen to the whole season. But okay, long and wonderful history of the Mesopotamians, and around 2300 BCE, we get this Sumerian flood story written down. So how did it find its way to the land of Canaan, some 600 miles away, to get wrapped up into the creation myth that the Israelites would write down as their own more than a thousand years into the future? The answer, as with many things in life, is beer. If you had the thought that I had the idea to title this episode, How Beer Explains Jewish History, you are correct. I had that thought. But that would have been taking a few too many liberties with my historical interpretation, so alas, I went with something a little more mundane. 
However, in the 1970s, archaeologists digging in the ancient city of Ebla, which is today in northern Syria, uncovered an incredible trove of documents. Several thousand years ago, a fire had swept through the royal palace there, pancaking the floors on top of one another. But like a collapsing bookcase held up by the books on its shelves, the destroyed palace preserved thousands of clay documents in the exact same order in which they had been neatly labeled, organized, and stacked. What they found were mostly economic records from the years 2500 BCE to 2200 BCE, about 300 years, which showed that Ebla was a major trade center along the route from Mesopotamia to Canaan. In fact, from the Ebla tablets, we get the first mention of the Canaanites, the people who inhabited the area that today is Israel and parts of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. The tablets preserved a ton of information about politics and commerce in this part of the ancient Near East, revealing trade and communication networks that existed amongst the various peoples, city-states, and empires, all going about their business. From textiles to gold to spices to olive oil, Everything under the sun was recorded as flowing into and out of the city. And of course, beer. Lots of beer. The Ebla tablets record all kinds, including a homegrown brew named after the city itself, and which appeared to be the preferred choice for a night out with the girls. I say the girls because it seems that women were the big-time brewers back then. Okay, so let's put it together. Let's say you're the guy who committed to clay for the very first time the story of the Sumerian flood epic. You might have written this story in one of the cities of the low marshlands that had a long history of flooding, from where perhaps this tale first arose in the distant past. A good candidate is a city called Ur. Ur was one of the major cosmopolitan and capital cities of Mesopotamia, which was already thousands of years old. It sat near the confluence of the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, making it especially prone to flooding. It was an impressive place, so impressive that some of its structures still survive today. Okay, fun fact for your next virtual cocktail party. There is a word in English preserved from the ancient Akkadian language of Mesopotamia, such that if you went back to Ur 4,000 years ago and spoke this word, both you and the locals would know what you were talking about. The word is ziggurat. A ziggurat is a rectangle-shaped stepped pyramid, often flat on top for a temple to be situated. And the city of Ur had a humongous one at its core, the foundations of which still exist today, and which was partially reconstructed by none other than Saddam Hussein. Okay, so you're sitting in your little mud brick house, carving this story into an ancient clay tablet, and then maybe it's picked up by a local trader as he's heading out on the road. Maybe he was a trader in goods. Maybe he was a beer merchant. The trader brings this flood story with him on the northwestern journey across the Fertile Crescent, hitting the major stops along the way like Uruk and Babylon and Mari and Ebla. In each place, he's talking up this story of the great flood that he just read, or maybe leaving copies of clay tablets on the shelf in the traveler's hostel. Once the story hits Ebla, it's now tapped into the trading network that brings it south into the land of Canaan, and there it marinates for centuries, adopted by the Canaanites and the Egyptians, and then, much later, picked up by the Israelites. It's a pretty straightforward explanation for how this story about the flood migrated from Mesopotamia to the pages of the Israelite creation story. And here's something else. 
An astute reader of the book of Genesis, or a careful listener of season one here at Jew I Don't Know, will have noticed another interesting tidbit that I just dropped. The reference to the city of Ur. For the Israelites would also later record that their founding patriarch and matriarch, Abraham and Sarah, came from Ur. They traveled the same northwestern journey across Mesopotamia that our hypothetical beer merchant did. The Hebrew Bible has Abraham and Sarah stopping at a place called Haran, which may be located in southern Turkey, not too far from Ebla. And from Haran, Abraham and Sarah, like the Sumerian flood epic, also made their way south into the land of Canaan. Remember what I said last episode about how the Bible is true, just not literally so? It's not a good source for historical accuracy. There's no mention of Abraham and Sarah anywhere outside the Bible, even though they end up as these major figures in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So we can't say that the stories about them in the book of Genesis are true, but we can say that these stories reflect that the Israelites understood their origins to be Mesopotamian, and that they well knew this major highway across the Fertile Crescent. The Hebrew Bible, then, helps us situate a history that predates the Israelites and that dramatically influenced them. Of course, it wasn't just traders and prophets and storytellers making their way around Mesopotamia's highways. Armies were also on the march. And there was one conqueror in particular who would have a big influence on the Israelites, along with everyone else in the Middle East. Five hundred years or so before the Israelites came onto the scene in Canaan, one of the greatest, or at least most legendary, rulers of ancient history rose to power in the city of Babylon. Babylon had been around for centuries already, but mostly as a small town and minor city-state, competing with all the rest of its Mesopotamian neighbors and what is today Iraq. The ruler's name was Hammurabi, and he inherited the throne from his father at the age of 18, about the year 1792 BCE. For the next 40 years, he would go on a conquering spree, transforming Babylon from minor town to the capital of an empire. He conquered the Assyrians, which made all of Mesopotamia his, and just about everyone in the Near East fell under his influence in one way or the other. Hammurabi's empire was very short-lived. After he died in 1750, Babylon was ruled by a variety of successors whom Donald Trump would likely refer to as low-energy. They squandered whatever gains Hammurabi had made, and the Babylonians were eventually overtaken by another group. But don't feel too bad. They'll be back to rule again in a thousand years, and their city, Babylon, will continue to be a major power center in Mesopotamia. And as we'll see, play a huge role in Jewish history. But the point of this is that despite his brief empire, what makes Hammurabi so famous and influential is his code of law. The Code of Hammurabi, as it's known, is often claimed as the earliest law code in history, but that's not correct. We have several others that are older. But it is the most complete of the earliest codes we have, and like the Sumerian flood epic, it influenced everyone who came across it. Indeed, Hammurabi even has a marble seal of himself on the wall of the United States House of Representatives. Shortly before he died, Hammurabi had carved into a seven-foot-tall basalt rock a group of 282 laws, covering all kinds of things. Economic contracts, property rights, divorce, slavery, adultery, and especially punishment. 
lots and lots of detailed punishments for all kinds of crimes and infractions. Hammurabi placed the law code in public for all to see, possibly because he wanted everyone to know the laws, except that most people were illiterate, so more likely he wanted everyone to see what a great and wise and just ruler he was. This huge stone sat in Babylon for 600 years, when it was plundered and taken to what is now Iran. It was rediscovered in 1901 and sent off to the Louvre in Paris. In case you thought the Mona Lisa was the highlight of that tour, I gotta tell you, seeing the Code of Hammurabi in person was one of the best nerd moments of my life. Carved into basalts, we find Hammurabi declaring that, If a man put out the eye of another man, his eyes shall be put out. Hammurabi then dives into more details, like what if he puts out the eye of a slave, for instance, or if he just knocks out someone's teeth, each offense parried with its own specific punishment. There is particular attention paid to the obligations of men in a variety of situations confronting their wives and daughters, from abuse to death to dowries and miscarriage. There are even several lines of what to do about a goring ox, that is, what the owner of an ox is required to do if his animal kills or maims another person. And here's where it gets interesting. Because if you know your Hebrew Bible, you might say, wait a minute, these laws are all found in the book of Exodus. And even if you don't know your Hebrew Bible, surely you've heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, which you may vaguely know comes from the Bible. Except that now you know, it doesn't, at least not originally. Indeed, where Hammurabi calls for proportional punishment for eyes and teeth and for hands to be cut off for various infractions, the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verse 24, declares, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. And there are many such examples. Now, it's not an exact comparison. In fact, the key differences between the codes in Hammurabi and how they're written in Exodus reveal key features of Israelite society and ideology, but let's stay focused on the big picture of this episode and come back to that another time. I'm easing you into this ancient history stuff. Okay, so the big picture here is that we found very similar, and in some cases nearly identical, laws from Hammurabi laid down centuries before the Book of Exodus was composed. So when the Code of Hammurabi was found in 1901, it rocked the world of biblical scholarship, and people have been debating it ever since. Many have argued that Hammurabi's laws spread throughout the Near East, became commonly accepted legal traditions, and that's what the Israelite writer of Exodus was pulling from. But others contend, and this seems to be the dominant view these days, that the Israelite writer must have had a copy of Hammurabi's code sitting on his desk. He copied out Hammurabi's codes directly, but inserted or deleted words or ideas to fit laws to Israelite tradition and policy. In other words, it was a direct translation from one to the other, in similar fashion to our writer of the biblical flood story pulling from the ancient tales of Sumer, Assyria, and Babylon. The writers of the Hebrew Bible had access to some of the best materials out there, and they used it, reworked it, and told it anew. Luckily, the prophet Jeremiah wasn't yet alive to write in his book, Assuredly, I'm going to deal with the prophets who steal my words from one another. So look, I'm taking a lot of liberties here. I'm making connections that we just don't have the full knowledge to validate, and a little bit comparing apples to oranges. 
We can't know exactly from which city in Mesopotamia the flood story originated or was written down for the first time. Maybe it was Ur. Maybe it was somewhere else. But I picked Ur because of its connection to the Abraham story. It's fun to think that maybe Abraham and Sarah and the flood stories all came from the same city, and it's a real possibility. We have to be mindful of our historical sources. The Hebrew Bible simply isn't a good source for factual information. It isn't telling us that the world-destroying flood actually really happened, or that the harsh laws of Exodus were actually really carried out. As I say repeatedly, the Bible is true, just not literally so. And the truth being told here is what the writers of these stories in the Hebrew Bible are trying to tell us. That the Israelites were profoundly influenced by the ideas, cultures, stories, and traditions that came from the Mesopotamian civilizations to the east of Canaan. Roughly today's Iraq to today's Israel. When we're reading about Noah's Ark in Genesis or the esoteric laws of Exodus, we're reading Israelite interpretations of famous Mesopotamian stories that have been retold to fit the Israelite narrative. A thousand years before the Israelites came onto the scene, the stories were already being told that would have a profound influence on the Jewish people. And yet, the astute podcast listener may have picked up on something strange. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, and in particular the book of Exodus, it is Egypt that seems to hold the fixations of the Israelite writers. Mesopotamia, the empires of Sumer, Assyria, and Babylon, they play only an incidental role in the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books, what we call the Torah, are focused on the Israelites as descended from slaves of Egypt, and it is Egypt that is referenced time and time again. Yet, the Hebrew Bible retains very few influences from ancient Egypt, virtually nothing like the well-preserved flood story or the laws of Hammurabi. But in the early years of Israelite history, it is Egypt that dominates the land of Canaan. Indeed, the very first mention we have in history of the Israelites comes from the pharaoh Merneptah, bragging about wiping them out. So what gives? Next episode, we're moving from Mesopotamia on Canaan's east side to Egypt on Canaan's west side, and the humble origins of a very famous city you've heard of, and maybe even visited, you're listening to Season 5 of Jew I Don't Know on the first thousand years or so of Jewish history, jewidontknow.com. My email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.